Father, would you grant the power of your spirit upon the preached word and the taught word today. I pray, Lord, that you'd separate anything that is from my flesh, which is from your spirit, and the minds and the hearts of your people today, that they would be able to discern truth and make a right application of your truth and your word today. And we ask this favor through Jesus. Amen. Do you have religion or Christ? That's the one question I want to ask you today, and I want you to get to the bottom of that question. Do you have religion or do you have Christ? And you might say, well, Brian, I thought they were the same thing. I thought if you had religion, that meant you had Jesus. But see, nothing could be further from the truth. If you only have religion and die without Christ, you will perish eternally. That's how significant it is. That's how important it is that all of us possess Christ rather than just possess a form of religion. You say, well, okay, what's the difference between religion and Christianity or possessing religion and possessing Christ? Phillips Brooks, who is a great New England preacher during the latter part of the 1800s, was once asked this question. Is it necessary to have a personal experience with Christ in order to be a Christian? Is it necessary to have a personal experience with Christ in order to be a Christian? And this is what he responded after he paused and thought about it. He said, my friend, a personal experience with Christ is Christianity. In other words, you can't be a Christian unless you are vitally joined to Jesus Christ, unless you enter into a saving relationship with him. It's not enough to know about him. You must come to know him as Savior and King and Treasure and Lord. So let's contrast a little bit between what happens if you have religion and what happens if you have Christ. If you have religion, you tend to focus on outward activities. But if you have Christ, you experience an inner conversion of the heart. If you have religion, you focus on head knowledge of Christ and God. But if you have Christ, you experience a heart knowledge of Christ and God. If you have religion, you focus on being good enough to be accepted by God. But if you have Christ, you experience God making you acceptable to Him. If you have religion, you spend your time trying to reform. But if you have Christ, you experience being reborn. If you have religion, you spend your time decorating your old life. But if you have Christ, you experience receiving a brand new life. If you have religion, you focus on man's work for God. But if you have Christ, you experience God's work for man in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you have religion, you focus on being saved by human achievement. But if you have Christ, you experience being saved by divine accomplishment. They're to two totally different things. And the reason I bring this up is because Jesus in our text today is going to be speaking with people who had religion but didn't have Christ. And oddly enough, they were the disciples of John the Baptist. We wouldn't expect the disciples of John the Baptist to be religious, 
but yet lacking in vital saving faith. But apparently they were. They came to Jesus and they asked him a question. And so our text today has to do with a question that they asked and the answer that Jesus responded to them. And Jesus responds to their question in three illustrations. He gives an illustration of a bridegroom with invited guests to a wedding. Then he gives an illustration of a new patch on an old garment. And then he gives an illustration of new wine put in old wineskins in order to answer their question. So let's first of all go to the question. And we find it in verse 33. This is the question of the religious. They said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Now you say, Brian, that doesn't sound like a question. It sounds like a statement. And you're right. In Luke, it comes across as a statement. But if you were to compare Matthew and Mark with Luke, you'd find out that in Matthew and Mark, it comes across as a question. Let me just read to you Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? There it is. The disciples of John came to Jesus, and their question was this, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, notice, first of all, who is asking that question? According to Matthew 9, 14, it's the disciples of John that are asking the question. Why would the disciples of John be asking this question? You know, we, we think John the Baptist, he was closely related to Jesus Christ. He was the forerunner. He was preparing the way for Christ. Why wouldn't his disciples just get in line and follow Jesus? Well, it's not entirely clear, but apparently some of them did not. They became disciples of John, but not disciples of Jesus. Remember, John had a powerful ministry. All Judea and Jerusalem was going out to the River Jordan to be baptized by him. And so he conceivably had hundreds, maybe even thousands of disciples that had embraced his teaching. They had repented. They had been baptized. And yet they had not followed Christ when John pointed the Messiah out to them. Instead, they adhered to John. There was this loyalty, this allegiance to John. And so here they were. They had repented. They had been baptized. They wanted to follow God seriously and devoutly. And so they began to ask themselves, well, how do I do that? Well, who are the most devout, serious followers of God amongst the Jews today? Well, it's the Pharisees. And so they began to mimic and follow the example of the Pharisees. They picked up some bad habits along the way. They began to fast, just like the Pharisees fasted. Now, what did their question have to do with? The question had to do with, why are we fasting so often and you, Jesus, you and your disciples aren't doing it? You're not falling in line with us. You're not adopting our methods. You're not adopting our religious practices. We're fasting all the time, and yet you seem to just be eating and drinking. What's going on here? Do you think you're somehow better than us? Why do we have to fast and you don't have to fast? And so they were critical of Jesus. They thought that they were right and he was wrong. Now my question is, why were they fasting so often at all? What does scripture say in the Old Testament about required fasts? How many were days out of the year were you required to fast as a Jew? Anybody know? One day. 
the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. God told them he required that they humble their souls, afflict their souls, which was a euphemism that meant that they were to fast and abstain from food. So one out of 365 days of the year, they were required as a people to fast and to humble themselves. But yet by the time of Jesus, the elders had developed all kinds of traditions and they had adopted many other fast days. There was about seven or eight fast days that were regularly observed by the Jews when Jesus appeared on the scene. And the Pharisees were not content just to go with those seven traditional fast days. They decided they were going to be really spiritual. So they were going to fast twice every week. And tradition tells us that they decided they were going to fast on Monday and Thursday of every week. Now talk about committed, serious fasting. So that's what's going on. Why did the question arise anyway is what I would like to know. Why did they come to Jesus and ask him, why aren't you fasting and why aren't your disciples fasting? Well, what comes right before this scene in your Bible? Yeah, Matthew th throws this great feast. He invites all his sinner friends, prostitutes and tax collectors. They all show up. Jesus shows up with his disciples. Some Pharisees are looking on to see what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus eats and drinks with these sinners. And the Pharisees start grumbling. And they're saying, why does your teacher eat and drink with these, these tax collectors, these sinners? And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, it's not the well that need a doctor. It's those who are sick. Jesus was saying, I am a physician of souls. And I have come to spend time with people who are sick so that I can heal them. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And no doubt some Pharisees saw Jesus in Simon's or Levi's house eating and drinking and feasting. And my hunch is that Matthew threw that feast on either a Monday or a Thursday when the Pharisees were fasting. And so they're going, why do you get to eat and drink and we can't? What's going on here? Why aren't you behaving like us? Why are you exempt? So that's the question. Now let's see what Jesus answers. Verse 34 through 39. He gives basically two answers to their question. Number one, because his presence with them makes it inappropriate to fast. That's the first answer. Then secondly, even if my disciples did fast, it would be completely incompatible with your fasts. So let's look at the first one. Because Jesus' presence with them makes it inappropriate to fast. Look at verse 34 and 35. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So what's his point? His point is that he's the bridegroom. And his disciples are the invited guests to the wedding. And there's one thing that is just completely out of character and inappropriate when you go to a wedding feast is to sit there and decline to eat any food. I mean, think about it. You're sitting down at this wedding feast and the guy next to you uh, doesn't have anything on his plate. So you pass him the honey-baked ham. He says, oh, no, thank you. None for me. 
Well, here are some mashed potatoes. Oh, no thanks. I'm fasting today. Well, here's some pumpkin pie. No, 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 no. I'm fasting. What do you mean you're fasting? Fasting? Nobody fasts at a wedding. Right? It's completely out of place at a wedding. In fact, it would be insulting to the bride and the groom for them to invite you and lay this great spread out and for you to push your way and say, no, 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 I'm fasting today. So Jesus' point is, while the bridegroom, who is himself, is with his disciples here on the earth before he goes to the cross, while he's with them, they have to rejoice because the king has come down and he says in the presence of his disciples. What is the flavor? What is the uh, spirit that takes place at a wedding? Celebration. Celebration. Joy. Right? Festivity. Merriment. It's not gloom and doom and mourning and humiliation. Now, there's a place for humbling ourselves in the Christian life. There's a place for mourning over sin, as we heard last week. But Jesus here is emphasizing that when he is with his disciples, that's the time for joy and life and celebration and feasting and enjoying him as the king. In fact, if you were to go back to Isaiah 62, verse 5, this is what it says. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, according to that text, who is the bridegroom? God. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In the Old Testament, God, Jehovah God, was the bridegroom. Israel was the bride. Now, here Jesus comes on the scene and he makes these backhanded remarks about, or these undercover remarks about how he is the bridegroom. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm God. God has come down from heaven to visit his people. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is prophesying about the Messiah who would come into the world. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Jesus Christ according to Zechariah's prophecy, is the Lord God of Israel. And he came down from heaven to visit and then to redeem the people of God. Now, will Jesus' disciples ever fast? If it's inappropriate for them to fast while Jesus was on the earth, well, will they ever fast? Well, verse 35 says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. So what are the days Jesus is talking about? When will the bridegroom be taken away from them? What's that a reference to? His, yeah, his death. He's taken away and then he ascends to heaven. And in that day, the day between Jesus' ascension and his second coming, he says, then my disciples are going to fast. And that's exactly what we find in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. The prophets and teachers in Antioch fasted and ministered to the Lord. In chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas fast and pray before they appoint elders. Fasting is taking place during the infancy of the church, after Jesus has been raised from the dead. So yes, there will be a time when the disciples will fast. But what I find interesting is how the Pharisees viewed their religious life. 
they viewed their religious life as a funeral. Jesus viewed his life as a wedding. Completely opposite viewpoints of how to view our relationship with God. When the, when the Pharisees viewed their religious life, they looked at it in terms of those things that they had to give up that they really wanted to do. And then the distasteful duties they had to perform that they didn't want to perform. So here are things we don't want to do, but we have to do them in order to get to heaven. And here are things that we want to do, but we have to give those up in order to get to heaven. And so they fasted constantly as a sign of this mourning, this moroseness, this gloominess that covered their lives. And Jesus, on the other hand, instead of looking at life like a funeral, all these negative, bad, horrible things that were happening, he looked at life as the things he got to enjoy. He enjoyed his Father. He enjoyed fellowship and communion with God. It was a celebration to him. It was a life of joy and excitement and life and enthusiasm. And this is the kind of life that he wanted his disciples to experience with him. A life of joy. Irma Bombeck, who is the nationally syndicated columnist, she tells a story once in one of her columns. She says that she was in church one day and a little girl in the row in front of her turns around and she starts smiling at the people behind her. And her mother saw her do that and she says, stop grinning. And she swatted her on the behind. And then she goes, that's better now. <laughs> and <laughs> Irma says, a lot of people have the attitude when they go to church of someone who has this great wealthy aunt who has just died and left everything in her will to her pet hamster. And they, they come with this sour, bitter, morose, gloomy spirit, whereas as in fact we ought to have the, the, the life of Christ, the joy, the life, the excitement, the celebration of knowing and entering into a relationship with our bridegroom. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now let's see if we can make some application. Not only was Jesus alive and present with his disciples 2,000 years ago, but he's alive and present with us every single day through the Holy Spirit. Yes, physically, bodily, he's at the right hand of God, but he has sent his Spirit to live in us so that we can have fellowship with him so that he is with you at all times. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So if Jesus truly is risen from the dead, that means he's alive. That means that you and I can know him. We can talk to him, and he can talk to us. He can show up in our daily life. He can interact with us. He can break into our lives and do special things. We don't serve a dead Messiah. We serve a living one. One that we can know. One that, and if you know him, you ought to experience the joy of Christ. What I think Jesus really wants us to focus on here is relationship. He's the bridegroom. He's the lover of our souls. One day we will, in a resurrection body, we will actually literally be with him. But until then, we can spiritually be with him. He can interact with us and love us, and we can love him in return. 
You see, the Pharisees looked at their religious life as doing, 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 and abstaining, abstaining, abstaining in order to achieve their salvation. But the Christian life is completely different. It's a relationship with Christ based on what He has already achieved for us. So we don't work, we don't earn favor with God, we receive favor with God as a gift that has been purchased for us when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. So let me just ask you, do you know him? I'm not asking you, do you know a few things about him? Or do you know some things in the Bible? I'm asking you, do you really have a personal, vital, intimate, saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Because nothing else will save you. You must have a true relationship with Him. Christianity is not just knowing certain doctrines. And, you know, religion basically is all about stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things. That's not Christianity. Christianity isn't stop doing the bad things, start doing the good things. Christianity is know Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 3, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you have eternal life? Unless you know Christ, you don't have eternal life. And so I want to encourage you this morning to, to work on your relationship with Christ. Work on the relationship. As in any marriage, people talk about if you want to have a good marriage, you've got to work on the marriage, you've got to work on the relationship. It's the same thing with your relationship with, with Christ. If you want to have a good relationship with Christ, you've got to invest time and energy into that relationship. And so I'm not calling you to abstain from this and start doing this. This morning, what I'm calling you to is think about your relationship with Jesus. How's it going? How's it going in your prayer life with Jesus? How's it going in your communion with Him? Do you actually spend time singing songs to Jesus in your own devotional time? Do you throughout the day, find ways to express love to Jesus? Is there a two-way relationship taking place between you and Christ? He's your bridegroom. And if that's true, joy will be the inevitable fruit. The inevitable fruit of a true relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's Jesus' first response. My disciples don't fast because my presence with them makes it inappropriate to fast. Secondly, Jesus says, even if they did fast, their fasting would be completely incompatible with your fasting. Completely incompatible. Now, I want you to notice verses 36 to 39. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Now let me just explain those two illustrations for you. The first one is a new patch on an old garment. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it onto an old piece of clothing. 
Why not? Well, the new patch is made out of unshrunken material. We know that from Mark and Matthew's Gospel. They tell us that. It's unshrunk. So, maybe you ladies who ever do any sewing will know firsthand. If you've ever taken the wrong kind of material that has not been shrunk, and you put it on a pair of pants, let's see right here in the knee, and that pair of pants has already been shrunk, and you put it in the washing machine, what happens? The patch shrinks, doesn't it? And it pulls away from, from where it had been sewn on, and it, a tear, a rip results. So you just don't do that. You don't put this new piece of material on an old piece of clothing. Second illustration, verse 37. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Now, we're not familiar with wineskins because we don't put wine in wineskins anymore. But the Jews did. We put wine in bottles, glass bottles. They didn't have glass bottles. So what did they put their wine in? They take a goat or a sheep. They would kill it. They'd use the meat for food and the wool for clothing. But then they'd take the skin of that animal. They would skin it. And they would leave an opening where the neck was. And they would go halfway down each of the four legs. They'd take that skin and dry it and tan it. And then they'd turn it inside out. And then they'd sew up the holes where the legs were and leave the top open where the neck was and they'd pour the wine into that container. And then they would tie up the neck and that became their, their bottle <laughs> to hold their wine. His point is, you don't take new wine that has never been fermented and pour it into an old wineskin. And the reason you don't is because that old wineskin is brittle. Over time it becomes hard and brittle and any elasticity it used to have is gone. It can't expand anymore. But here you've got this new wine that starts to ferment. And what is wine that ferment? What does it start to do? Bubbles <laughs> and expands and it starts to grow. It's kind of like yeast. It, 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 it changes dimensions. It gets bigger. And if it's already full, in this brittle, hard wine skin, and this wine starts fermenting, pretty soon it bursts the skin and all the wine comes out. That's what Jesus' point is. I want you to notice a couple of words here. New and old. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Jesus is really emphasizing the difference between old and new. Now what did he mean by the old and what did he mean by the new? This is where it gets difficult to interpret the passage. And there, I've read, I don't know, probably a dozen commentaries at least, and I've listened to probably six or seven sermons by respected pastors, and there's all kinds of ideas of what he meant. So let me just tell you what I think it means. Could be wrong, but I think I'm right. It's in the context of fasting. The, the answer he gives flows back to the question, right? He's answering a question, and the question was, why don't your disciples fast? And I believe the old here refers to their old way of fasting, the new refers to Jesus' teaching on fasting, which is brand new, 
completely different and distinct from the way they fasted. It's kind of like the Wright brothers in 1903. They're the ones that invented the plane, right? You guys know about the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright? The first plane that they invented weighed 750 pounds. It traveled a distance of 120 feet, and it had an engine that was 15 horsepower. Okay? You got the stats? Okay, I want you to compare that plane to a Boeing 747 jumbo jet. It weighs 800,000 pounds. It has 60,000 pounds of fuel alone in the engine. It can travel 7,200 miles. So let's say we want to try to mix the old wooden plane of the Wright brothers with the new Boeing 747. And so we take the engine off that Boeing 747 and we put it on this little plane over here. What's going to happen? <laughs> it's going to be decimated. I mean, the, the, the weight of the fuel alone, 60,000 pounds put on a 750-pound pl plane, it's just going to, it's going to become little tiny pieces of splinters if you try to do that. That's similar to what Jesus was saying. He's the new wine. He's the new patch. And you try to mix him with the old ways of the Pharisees and nothing will work. It's not compatible. You can't mix the two. So, let's ask ourselves this question. Why were the Pharisees fasting? What motivated them? What prompted them in their way of fasting? And there's two biblical answers to this question. The first one is in Matthew 6.16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Why did they fast? To be seen by others. So, if it was Monday morning, a Pharisee would get up and he would purposely not wash his face. He would purposely not bathe. He wouldn't shave. But instead he takes some white ash and put it on his forehead because he wants everyone to know that he's fasting. Now why would he want people to know he's fasting? Yeah. He wanted to appear righteous before men. That was the Pharisees' way of fasting. How did Jesus teach his disciples to fast? This is the new way, the new garment, the new wine. Verse 17 and 18 of that same chapter. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Their way of fasting, make sure everybody knows you're doing it so you can attract attention. Get your reward now. Jesus said, no, no, that's completely the wrong way. Let me show you the new garment, the new wine, the new way of fasting. It's this. Wash your face. Anoint your head. Don't let anybody know except for your Father. And He's going to reward you. Now, you won't get any reward from people, but who cares? The reward of God is way greater than the reward of any people. You see, their fasting was completely incompatible with Jesus' way of fasting. You can't mix them. You can't sew that old patch on the new garment or the new patch on the old garment, I should say. You can't put the new wine in that old way of fasting. Now, that was the first reason they would fast, to be seen by others. The second reason they would fast is to earn a righteous standing before God. 
And we know that because in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. And he said, Luke says that he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You probably remember this parable, don't you? He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and was praying like this, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a swindler, I'm not an extortioner, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not unjust. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. Okay, so here's the thing. He tells this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What did the Pharisee do in order to appear righteous before God? Sure. According to his prayer, what did he do? He fasted twice a week, and he paid tithes of all that he got. His fasting was a way for him to be righteous before God. Now, Jesus also says that there was a tax collector who was in that temple. That tax collector stood a great distance away from that holy Pharisee because he didn't feel worthy to be in his company and he was beating his breast because he knew from his heart came all of the misery of his life. All his sin proceeded from this dark, evil heart. And he said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm the sinner here, Lord, not him. He's righteous. I'm the sinner. And I love how Jesus ends this parable. He says, that man went down to his house justified. Now, you know what justified means. Declared righteous. Okay, so here we have the Pharisee. He trusted in himself that he was righteous, and he fasted in order to be righteous before God. But what happened? He went down to his house condemned. He thought he was righteous because of his fasting, but he was actually condemned. But here comes this tax collector in, who maybe he's never fasted a day in his life, but he was repentant. He humbled himself before God. He turned from his sin and asked God to have mercy on his soul, and God forgave him, and he went down to his house, declared righteous in God's sight. So the Pharisee trusts in himself. He fasts in order to earn his salvation. The tax collector is not trusting in himself at all. He knows there's nothing good in himself. He beats his breast, telling us he knows there's nothing good in himself. He trusts in God and God's mercy alone, and he is justified. So the Pharisee, the second reason he fasts is to earn a righteous standing before God. Jesus' way of fasting was not... He didn't teach his disciples to fast in order to earn merit before God. He didn't teach his disciples to fast in order to receive the praise of man. That's not Jesus' way of fasting. It has nothing to do with merit. It has nothing to do with earning favor with God. Fasting has to do with demonstrating that you desire God more than food. And so you want to spend time with him and you would like to go without things that might distract you from him. It has nothing to do with becoming any more righteous in the sight of God. In fact, if you're justified, you can't get any more righteous in the sight of God. You are as righteous as you can be. In fact, if you're justified, you are as righteous as Jesus Christ. Sounds impossible, but it's absolutely true. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
it reminds me of the modes of transportation near the end of the 1800s. Near the end of the 1800s, basically you had a couple ways of getting from point A to point B. You could walk, or you could ride a horse and buggy. And most families would have a horse or two, and they'd have a buggy, and when they went to church on Sunday, they'd get all the family, put them in the buggy, and off they'd go to church. And then one day, this family who's getting in their horse and buggy and going on to church, they see another guy coming down the street in another buggy, but there's no horse. It's a horseless carriage. And they look at that, and think, how in the world is that guy, how's it going? There's no horse. A horseless carriage, how can that be? And they figure, ah, oh, someone made an engine and stuck it onto that buggy. And now that's taking them to church without a horse. You see, that new mode of transportation was similar to the old one. It transported people, but it is new, isn't it? It's brand new. The automobile today is nothing like the horse and buggy, although there is some similarity. And the way of Jesus' fasting is similar in some respects to the way that the Pharisees fasted. They both abstained from food. It's similar in that respect. But it is brand new in that it has nothing to do with merit and it has nothing to do with seeking the praise of men. It's new. It's different. And you can't mix the new one with the old one. The Pharisees wished that Jesus would just sort of assimilate into what they were doing. That he would be sort of an add-on to Judaism. But folks, you can't make Jesus an add-on. Jesus didn't come to just be assimilated into the Jewish religion and be one of the gang. Put his rubber stamp on what the Pharisees were doing and just kind of a, appear as one of them. Jesus came to bring into a, existence a new kingdom. He's the king from heaven calling subjects to enter his kingdom through repentance and faith in him. So it's brand new. And the mistake we make today is that we make the same mistake the Pharisees made. We want to sort of add on Jesus. We view our life as sort of a pie that you slice up into many different pieces. And we've got this piece of pie, that's my... Christian part of a thing. You know, that's my church life. This is my family life. That's my job life. This is my entertainment and hobbies over here. And everything's sliced up. And we think, well, you know, I'm not completely happy. I'm doing okay, but I, I'd like to have a little bit more health or wealth or better marriage or more obedient kids or more purpose. So I think I need some Jesus. I need a slice of Jesus to add him to my life to make a good life a little bit better. You know, things go better with Coke, and we just change that. Things go better with Christ. Just add him in, and things will get a little bit better for you. Folks, Jesus didn't come to make things a little bit better for you. Jesus came to destroy your old life and bring into existence a new one where he is the center. He becomes the pie. He's not a slice of pie. He is the pie. <laughs> He's not a part of your life. He is your life. And until you get that, you don't understand the gospel. That's the mistake so many professing Christians make. They try to just add Jesus on. Things will go better with Christ. I know it. So I'll start attending church and I'll, I'll start reading my Bible once in a while and I'll just sort of make a little space for him in my life. He doesn't want a little space. 
He wants to devour you. He wants to consume you. He wants to replace everything that your old life was with a new life where he is the center. In the 1500s, there was a scientist by the name of Copernicus, and he made the startling discovery that the earth was not the center of the universe. Nobody believed him, but he believed it was true, and he wrote a book. In fact, I forgot the name of the book. I, I Googled it this last week, but I forgot the name. Anyway, he, he wrote a book in 1543, propounding his new theory. Folks, we need a Copernicus revolution. If you are going to get to heaven, you need a Copernicus revolution. You see, we're all born by nature sinners worshiping ourselves. The world revolves around us. We're like the people before 1543. We think... This world, this solar system, this universe all revolves around us. We're the center. And until you get out and Jesus comes in and becomes the center, you're not even a Christian. That's what becoming a Christian means. Jesus becomes center. And now you revolve around the orbit of Christ. You don't say, okay, I'll try to make a little bit of time on Sundays for Jesus. That's the wrong thing to be saying. You, you start to say, well, how can I fit all these other things around Jesus? He takes the center stage now. He takes center place. I'm a little star. He's the sun, and I'm going around him. We don't add him on like a patch. I'll just put a new patch on my jeans. I'll just add a little bit of new wine to my wineskin. No, no. He is all in all. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we shall be revealed with him in glory. What does it say about Christ? He is our life. And if Jesus isn't your life, folks, something's wrong. Something's broke. Perhaps you've never really met him. Perhaps you don't have a saving relationship with him. He must become your life. He didn't come to be an add-on. He came to become your life. And that's what I want to encourage and challenge you with today. Your relationship to Jesus. That it would be a relationship of life. And if it is, what's the result? Joy. Celebration. Abundant life. That should characterize the Christian's life. And if you look at your life and say, Guy, I've got no joy then something's wrong with the relationship to Jesus. Because if the bridegroom is with you and you're enjoying communion with the bridegroom, joy is the inevitable fruit. I started off by saying, do you have religion or do you have Christ? And I want to end with that. What is your answer this morning? Do you simply have a bunch of do's and don'ts that you're trying to fulfill in order to somehow achieve a right standing before God. If you do, I encourage you to throw that thing in the garbage heap. Get rid of that religion. That religion will not save you. That religion will damn you. If you follow a religion without Christ, without a saving relationship to Him, it will send you straight to hell. Get rid of it while you can and embrace Jesus Christ. Some people have a religion of ceremony and form, and sacraments, and they think that if you just get baptized in the church, and then take your first communion in the church, and then go to holy confession, and do your penance, and get married in the church, and have, have the minister or the priest say his last rites over you before you die, then everything's good, you'll make it into heaven. That is complete nonsense. 
The Bible teaches us that we are saved by Christ, period. Period. There were some people in the, in the early church that were called Judaizers. They show up in the book of Galatians. Paul went to the area of Galatia and he preached the gospel and he won some converts. But as soon as he left, some other guys came in behind him. These were Jews. And they said, well, it's good that you believe in Jesus. That's a good thing. Wonderful. We like that. But it's not enough. You need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses if you're going to be saved. And that caused a huge rift in the early church. What they were saying is Jesus isn't enough. Let me give you a formula this morning. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I don't care how many sacraments you've kept or not kept. I don't care how many rituals you've done or haven't done. I don't care how many times you've gone to church or how many times you've opened a Bible. What I care about is do you have a saving relationship with the person of Jesus Christ? If you have him, even though you may not have anything else, you have all you need right there. Faith in the Savior. Faith in the Savior. May God enable each one of us to enter into fully the relationship with our bridegroom. Let's pray. Lord, would you take this passage today and do a work through it? I pray, Lord, if there are people that have come this morning that don't know you, but just know about you, that all they've got is a form of religion, but not a saving relationship to God through Christ. Lord, would you smash their old religion, destroy it, cause them to discard it, and come to Jesus as a broken, humble, penitent sinner, pleading for mercy, and entering into a relationship with the one who truly loves them, and died for them, and has already accomplished salvation for them. Lord, this we pray through the merit of Jesus. In his great name, amen.